Okay, we have finished up Isaiah chapter 40. And remember, at the beginning of 40, we reach a turning point in the study of Isaiah. We go from the historical part of verses 36 through 39, and we come to Isaiah 40, where God starts talking about bringing His people back from captivity, back into the land, And the people had two big questions. Number one, does God even want to mess with us to bring us back to the land? And if He is, is He able to? Is He willing and is He able? And Isaiah answered both of those questions in chapter 40. He showed, of course, He is willing and of course, He is able to do it. So, Isaiah 40, evidently a great passage of scripture and they were tender words to to the people of God and those tender words uh, are comforting words they continue in chapter 41 as in your notes this week it starts out in these verses Isaiah is continuing to deliver words of comfort to the exiles And now we'll start back there with Darlene, if you will read for us, verses 1 through 7. Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by, sorry, safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. The coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. Then he fastened. He fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. Okay, like I said in these verses, Isaiah continues with words of comfort to the exiles. Remember, they're in exile, and uh, they probably have no idea what's going to happen to them, uh, but they are absolutely without excuse for that because either they're ignorant of the Scriptures or they don't, don't believe them. Okay, so in these verses, number one, God is, it shows that God is absolute sovereign over history. And second, that He has not forsaken them, but they do have a future. Even though it looks terrible now, they do have a future. Alright, the coastlands of the nations are commanded to be silent. In verse 1, it starts out saying, Keep silence before me. Alright, this is like a courtroom scene and the nations are commanded to bring forth their evidence. Anybody in here have access to the Christian Standard Bible uh, on their 
phone or anything? I think I do, Bill. Yeah, if you could look that first verse up. Um, I meant to bring mine. But. 40 verse 1? 41 40, verse 1. Yeah, 41 1. I guess it's just a Hebrew word that they're not sure the right way to translate it. Because some have coastlands, some have islands. Um, but it's not Israel. No. No, this is... Other uh, places. Yeah. All right, so the CSB has it. They have 41.1. Be silent before me, coasts and islands, and let people renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them testify. Let them come together for the trial. Okay, they even say, let them come together for the trial. So he says, get ready for the trial. And I suppose that's just a translation issue, whether it's coastlands or coasts or islands. Anyway, it's the <clears throat> nations outside of Israel. All right, so they are chided to muster up their strength. They are going to go on trial, and we will see that they have no strength. So, got a question. Where do you see, see trial there? NASB says come together for judgment. Yeah. So there's no trial. Uh, tri trial would be the better translation of that word. According to most, most people that know Hebrew, they say this, this is a courtroom situation. That could be a little interpretive, but the idea is there. Okay. Uh, and, and that'll probably come more. Uh, Evident as we go through this. What were you saying, Arlene? I was just saying it is a, in a trial that judgment is pronounced. Yeah. So it's, yeah. if nothing else, it's F implied. Yeah. yeah. The tr you have the trial and then the judgment. And uh, the idea here is that you're coming to judgment because you have no case. You have no case. All right, so. It appears that King Cyrus of Persia is being introduced in verses 2 through 7. In Isaiah 45, verse 1, we says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. So Cyrus is an instrument that God is going to be using. Cyrus was the king of um, Persia. Now these, um, these people from Judah, God's people, were in Babylon. They had gone to Babylon in 587, or 586. But then... King Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon, Babylon in 539 and shortly thereafter he issues the decree that the Jews should return to Jerusalem. 
So even though Cyrus was a wicked king, God was going to use him to get his will accomplished. This doesn't mean that Cyrus was a righteous man any more than Pharaoh was, um, but that God will be using him. He is an instrument in God's hand. He is totally under God's control. And uh, we'll see more of Cyrus later on in Isaiah. And this passage makes it clear that God is sovereign and He will use Cyrus for His purpose. Now, as we read in Isaiah chapter 40, the nations are nothing. Not even Babylon is anything. If you remember, Babylon fell without a fight to Cyrus. They were having a huge party. And while they were having their party, Cyrus came and took over the kingdom. One of the verses I think of whenever I think about how God uses Cyrus is Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of waters. He turneth it whithersoever he wills. That is very comforting for us at all times, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Even the most wicked of leaders... Um, is his heart is in the hand of God. And God turns it however he wants to. Okay. Cyrus is just a pawn, like in chess, a pawn in God's hand to accomplish God's purpose for his people. God's enemies worship worthless idols in hopes of defeating Yahweh, as we see in verse 7. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith who smooths with a hammer, inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering, soldering, and he fastened it with the pegs that it might not totter. Like we mentioned last week, this is pretty pathetic. Pretty pathetic God, isn't it? That you have to make sure that he doesn't totter. And yet, this is Babylon's God. My God just like this. Um, God's enemies worship worthless idols in hopes of defeating Yahweh. And in doing so, they show forth their worthlessness. If we turn, turn to Psalm 115, verse 8. talking about idols beginning in verse 5 they have mouths but they do not speak eyes they have but they do not see and then looking on down it keeps going on with that verse 8 it says those who make them are like them so is everyone who trusts in them so the foolishness of idolatry is that you're worshiping something that has absolutely no benefit at all and you become like that you don't benefit anybody anywhere, especially not God. So these are worthless Babylonians serving worthless idols, and they themselves have become worthless. And Derek, Derek Thomas makes this statement. He says, Strong men like Nebuchadnezzar, Sennacherib, Alexander the Great, or Antiochus Epiphanes are nothing before God. They are not in control of their faith. So he's, he's giving comforting words here. 
to the children of Israel. They're not in charge of their faith. God is. And that should be comforting for Christians all throughout the ages. Christians have always been persecuted. Jesus promises they will always be persecuted. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And they are not in control of their fate. Okay, any other comments on those first seven verses? Going back to the first and second verse, the Geneva Bible uses the word judgment instead of trial. And we usually think of judgment as the punishment, the negative. Judgment doesn't have to be negative. It's a decision as to what the outcome will be. And in verse 2, the Bible, the Geneva Bible says, who raised up justice from the east? So we even think of justice as normally a positive. (laughs) And so what it's done, it's it's sort of shown that the judgment, that the justice was punishment, but the decision was, was a positive decision. It's just sort of the way the words were played out against each other there. Well, he chastises those he loves. Yeah. So, so. And, and we're all guilty, so I mean, uh, but our justice is outside equal to the crime. And so there has to be a judgment made by God. Just like David, he wanted God's justice rather than the world's, because he knew God would be fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And merciful. Or man, man isn't so often. Slide that. Uh, let's see. I forget which one it is, but the Lord is... Uh, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne, which is bad news for everybody. But the second part of that verse says, but mercy and truth go before His face. And because of what Christ has done, we can have mercy and truth. And judgment upon the wicked is always good news for God's people. And actually, it's good news when it's judgment on His own people. Yeah. Not just their enemies, because that means He's putting us back in line. That means we're not illegitimate children. The Christians see that whatever the Lord does is right. The unbelievers... Everything the Lord does enrages Him eventually. Enrages them. And He usually accomplishes more than one thing with whatever He brings upon us. But we also need to make sure that we aren't just looking at from our from our standpoint. He may bring something upon us to show something to somebody else. Uh, even though we can be learned, we can be strengthened, taught, etc. But it sometimes is done so that somebody else sees something in their own life or sees our faith and our reaction, whatever it might be. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, some good insights there. Okay, let's go on now to verses... um, 8 through 20. And Elaine, you're next in line over yonder. 
But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you warm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make them up the hills like chaff. You shall wheel them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. In verses 8 through 20, God speaks to His people. He gives them reassurance. He will save them. And then He tells them He's going to be doing these... He tells them these things. First of all, they belong to Him by election. In verse 8 and 9. And we need to keep this verse in mind when we go to chapter 42. But you, Israel, are my servant Jacob, who I have chosen my descendants of Abraham, my friend, uh, we'll see what a sorry servant Israel was. And but Jesus, uh, God is going to send Jesus, the righteous servant, in the new covenant area era. Uh, Israel was a total failure, but Jesus Christ wasn't. He did everything he was supposed to do. <clears throat> but they do belong to him by election. And even as bad as they've been, he's not. Casting them off. Uh, his presence is with them. Verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. They accuse God a lot of times of abandoning, abandoning them. But He says, I'm with you. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. Uh, and He says, the third bullet, I will, He will strengthen them, help them, and uphold them. You're not alone, Israel. I will help you. And then he will destroy their enemies in verse 11 through 16. And he will provide for them, verses 17 through 20. 
and in verse 20, we read that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. All these things, Israel, you need to know God has done all these things. They're not just good luck. They're not anything of that sort. Um, but it is the Lord God who does these things. That should be very clear to you. It's no accident. You belong to the Lord. The earth belongs to the Lord. And these things come from His hand. That should strengthen your faith. Alright, any other insights on verses 8 through 20? Okay, then we'll go 21 through 29. And Kim, have enough endurance to read that for us? Stand to your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and let them tell us what shall come. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Either declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may declare it and behold it together. Behold, you are, you are, ye are of no value, and your making is of naught. Man hath chosen an abomination by them. I have raised up from the north, and he shall come from the east sun, shall he call upon my name, and shall come upon princes as upon day, and as a potter treadeth mire under the foot. Who hath declared from the beginning that we may know? or before time that we may say, He is righteous. Surely there is none that showeth. Surely there is none that declareth. Surely there is none that heareth your words. I am the first that saith to Zion, Behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that shall bring good tidings. But then I beheld, there was none. And when I inquired of them, there was no counselor. And when I demanded of them, they answered not a word. Behold, they are all vanity. Their work is of nothing. Their images are wind and confusion. <clears throat> we see in these verses the futility of worshiping idols. Derek Thomas comments, he says, God challenges the nations to produce their gods in a court for a contest. And he says, and remember, Israel too, has bowed down to these gods. Can any of them foretell the future? So you compare the true God who works all things to the counsel of His own will and is omnipotent, you compare Him to other gods, then you'll see how worthless they are, how, how worthlessness it is to worship them. The idols themselves are ignorant, and of the future and impotent and anyone who is worthless enough to true them to choose them is detestable so detestable thing doesn't even make any sense verse 24 indeed you are nothing and your work is nothing he who chooses you is an abomination so all idol worshippers all idols are an abomination in the eyes of God all idol worshippers are in the hands of God. And the nations, 
are challenged to present their case, and they can't do it. And these are your enemies, O Israel. Your enemies are worthless. They're an abomination to God. Okay. Um, in the end it says, indeed they are all worthless or vanity. Their work is nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. All they do is pass gas. I believe the Hebrew implies that. We've had that kind of language before in Isaiah. Okay, so that's what happens when you uh, worship idols. And that's what the Babylonians do. Uh, no army, no problem. I'm bringing you out. Yahweh is your God. You may not be faithful to me, but Yahweh is your God. And then in verse in chapter 42, Yahweh is going to get real personal, personable, personal, personal, and He's going to show these people the His righteous servant, this elect one, elect one. He starts talking about Jesus Christ, and we come across four servant songs in the next ten or so chapters, and we'll be looking at the first of those next week in chapter 42. You want to say something? Yeah. It's interesting that in Jeremiah 2, which we're going to be going over tonight, uh, whenever God is uh, adjudicating Judah and Jerusalem for their idolatry, He says this, Thus thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me and have walked after vanity and, and are become vain? So the King James translates that as vanity vain, whereas if you were to look at it in other translations, it's going to say idolatry, walk after idolatry. So I, I think the, the, the vanity there is a pretty pungent term to say that you're, you're going after something that's nothing, it's a vain thing. Yeah. Just okay. like what Isaiah is saying. Yeah. What verse are you referring to? This is a Jeremiah 2, verse 5. Okay. Okay, good point. Follow vanity, follow idols. Vanity fair. <coughs> and what? Vanity fair. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other comments on this insights? Interesting. On the way over today, Charles Robbins was uh, speaking on the ministers today that refer to themselves as prophets. There are no more prophets. Yeah. In this verse, he didn't cite it, but this is exactly what he was talking about. Ask them to show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods. In other words, prophesy something and let's see it come true. Yeah. <laughs> and if it doesn't come true, you're no prophet. Put up or shut up. That's exactly what Scripture says. That's how we test. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, isn't Jesus the, the sole prophet, priest, and king at this point in history? I mean, there there are no prophets. Uh, no, the office of prophets is uh, no longer around. Uh, Jesus Christ is our only prophet now. Yeah. 
Uh, he's our, the only priest. And he's a king and head of the church. Yeah, I think Deuteronomy 18 is the first place it shows Jesus Christ being the prophet part excellent. Before we close, I need to say something that I meant to say at the beginning. The uh, What I read out of the Trinity last week, the book The Trinity by Gordon Clark, I attributed that statement to Gordon Clark. That was actually John Robbins that wrote that. I think it, at the time was the head of the Trinity Foundation. So that was John Robbins. John Robbins, R-O-B-B-I-N-S. Okay, anything else? Okay. Uh, Kim, can you close us in prayer, please?